Hey, Summit PM, how are you guys? You guys are close. Are you, you comfortable with this? I'm a little uncomfortable, I'm be honest. I'm just going to back up slightly. I don't want to spit on you guys. Oh, man, you guys are so much more alert than the morning. This morning started off so rough. It got better, don't worry, though. Um, my name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at the Summit. Um, and typically on a Sunday, I'm kind of running around behind the scenes, uh, making sure that all of your chairs are straight. You're welcome. Making sure that you've got bread and wine and grape juice in the communi- at the communion tables. Making sure the bathrooms are clean. Uh, making sure that the temperature in here is just right. So if it gets a little hot, it's not my fault today, okay? It's probably Andy's. Um, and, uh, you know, I know I made that sound really depressing. I don't want you to feel bad for me. I really don't. I, uh, I actually really love that. Like, that's my sweet spot. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at my best uh, because I'm a details guy. Like, I love logistics and strategy um, and execution. And so, like, it really gives me joy uh, to just kind of get in the nitty-gritty of, of uh, like, being behind the scenes on a Sunday. Uh, you know, usually on a Sunday, if you see me up here, it's because something's gone terribly wrong. Like, somebody's sick, uh, somebody's out of town, uh, but that's not the case today. Everyone's uh, healthy, everyone's doing great. Um, and I think, you know... <sighs> One, one of the things that I really love is maps. Does anyone else love maps? Okay, not very many people. This morning, there's a few people that loved maps. Okay, good, there's a few of you. I really love topo maps. Like, if I had it my way, I would wallpaper my entire house with topo maps. Of Colorado, of California, that's where I'm from, of all the national parks. I love just seeing, like, where I've been, like, where I am, where I'm going. I love the whole process of, like, trip planning, like, before a hike or before a backpacking trip. Um, I love strategizing about, like, the fastest, most efficient way to get somewhere. Um, Like, for most of you, when you're going to do a hike or you're going to do a 14er, probably what you do is, like, the morning of, you roll out of bed, you you get your Google Maps app, and you punch in, like, Beerstadt Trailhead, right? You follow the directions right to the trailhead. You get to the trailhead, take a picture with the big sign, right, because you want to take the picture before the hike, not after, because you look like crap after the hike. So you take the selfie with your friends before the hike, put it on Instagram, you start hiking. See, it's not that easy for me. Like, I can't do that. I've tried. I can't do that. I, I spend days before the hike researching every possible route up that 14er, okay? Like, if you didn't know, 14er, all 14ers have alternate routes. Did you know that? Like, typically, they actually have more than one. But here's the catch. There's a really good reason why they're called the alternate route, right? There's a really good reason why they're not the main route. And I have this kind of affinity, though, for taking alternate routes and making my dear wife pay for it. In fact, she, uh, to this day, whenever she hears the word alternate, she refuses to go on a hike with me. She said, nope, I don't do alternate routes. Uh, she learned that one the hard way. Uh, another, another thing um, that I really enjoy is fly fishing. Anyone else fly fish out here? Okay, a couple of you, all right? See, if you want to catch fish, you don't fly fish, all right? If you want to catch fish, you go to Walmart, you just buy a cheap spinning rod, you buy a lure, some power bait, and you just start reeling them in. But if you like a challenge, if you like strategy, if you like the most technical hobby known to man, you fly fish, all right? And see, with fly fishing, there's so much more that goes into catching a fish and just throwing a line out in the water. With fly fishing, like, you've got to know, like, what, what's hatching that day? Like, what bugs are on the water? What bugs are, like, under the surface? What's the temperature? What's the time of day? Like, what part of the river? See, I'm boring a ton of you guys. <laughs> yeah. See, I, that's the way I'm wired, right? Like, I want to know, like, why did I catch that fish? Like, what does it take for me to be consistently successful? And that's the same way that I think about mission, all right? For the last several weeks... We've been in a series on mission. This is the very last week that we're going to be talking about this. And we've looked at um, topics like adoption. We've looked at 
racial reconciliation. We've looked at church planning, all different components to the mission of God. That is the work that God is doing through his people in this world. All right, and so when I think about mission, like, that's what excites me. That's, that's actually one of the main things that I do here at the summit is um, I oversee all of our city groups. Um, and I love being, having a hand um, in developing new city group leaders and helping them plant new city groups and helping them shepherd the people that are in their city groups. And as I, I was trying to think about a text uh, for today, um, there's so many awesome texts on mission. It's really hard to just narrow it down to one. Uh, but John 17 is kind of the classic text on mission. Um, and the reason why I feel like it's so fitting uh, to end this series with, because in John 17, Jesus not only gives us what the mission is, but he tells us how the mission is going to be accomplished. Like he gives us the strategy for mission. So the first thing that I want to look at tonight is I just want to look at what the text says, right? That's, pretty, that's usually a good place to start when you're teaching the Bible. So we're just going to look at what the text says. So um, make sure you got your Bibles out. I'm going to give you a little context before we jump right in there. Basically, what's going on here in John 17 is um, Jesus has gathered all of his closest followers um, into a room. Um, this is also being called the upper room, right? This is where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Uh, this is where he broke bread and shared wine with them, where he took communion with them, or the Lord's Supper. Um, and so basically Jesus knows that like, he only has a few moments left before his execution, um, he knows that, like, he doesn't have a lot of time left with his closest friends. And so what he di- does in, this final moment, in these final moments is super profound. He prays for them. And in this prayer that we have in John 17, we get a glimpse into what was most important to Jesus, right? Because that's the way final moments work. Like, when you only have a few moments left, you don't waste words. Um, you, when, when you look in a movie or... Um, any time in culture, maybe in a book, in a novel, where you see someone on their deathbed, right? That's like a picture of what defined them. That's like a picture of what was most important to them, their triumphs, their fears, their struggles, what they hope happens after they're gone. That's what's going on. Jesus is summarizing his entire mission and his mission for his followers in this chapter. And we're not going to read the whole chapter again. I wanted Brian to read it so that you guys could feel some of the emotion that's going on in this chapter, we're going we're gonna to hone in on verses 20 to 21. So let me just go ahead and read them again. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. That's us. That's you and me. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. All right, and then let's just back up real quick. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends us, all right? We're missionaries. That's where we get that language that we use around here all the time. You and I are missionaries. Then Jesus says that the purpose for this mission is um, that they may all be one, or sorry, no, where are we at, where are we at? So that the world may believe that you have sent me at the end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that's the purpose. What's the strategy? The strategy is what he prays right before that. He says that they may all be one. Unity. Oneness. That's the theme throughout this chapter that Jesus prays for over and over again. That you and I, as his followers, as participants in his mission, would be one. Jesus says so clearly in this text and many others that the strategy for Christian mission 
is Christian community, okay? The strategy for Christian mission is Christian community. Now, if you're like me, that probably seems a little too simple, right? Like, it's got to be more complex than that. It's got to be a little bit more difficult than that. Uh, That's kind of the way I think. I guess I tend to overcomplicate everything. Um, And so, like, if I have a problem, um, whether it's, like, a spiritual one or not, like, I always start with the most complex solution, and finally I, like, look at the Bible and realize that Jesus had a lot more simple solution than I could ever come with up with. So, like, in this text, this is actually, like, a gift to a guy like me. Like, I love how simple this solution is, at least at first glance, okay? Then I really started to think about it. Unity is not very simple, is it? Like, unity is really hard to find. If you think about the different communities that you're involved with around this city, where do you experience the kind of oneness and the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about in this text? Nowhere, right? It's super rare. Even as you think about our country right now, like where we're at in an election cycle, not only do we have like two parties, right? So the nation divided amongst two parties, but each party is divided within itself, right? Um, if you zoom out a little bit, even at like a global level, like a few months ago, you had uh, like the Britain leaving the UK, Brexit, right? And you have countries that are at war with others and also amongst themselves, okay? So it's not hard for us to realize like unity is hard to come by. But I want you to think about Maybe a time that you have experienced something like this, where you have experienced the kind of um, unity maybe that Jesus is talking about here. I was, as I thought about this, there's two events that kind of came to my mind. I'm sure you guys are at most of these, or both of these. Um, the first one was the 2014 World Cup. Okay? I remember watching that game against Ghana downtown at Skyline, Skyline Park with many of you. Were any of you down there with me? There's a bunch of people from the morning. Maybe none of you. Okay, sorry. You didn't get the invite. Um, So we were down watching Ghana play the U.S. national team. And, like, I've never seen a city just shut down like this. Like, people took off work to go watch this game. There's people that had never watched a soccer match before in their lives that were decked out in red, white, and blue. And then they're supporting the team. And when we won that game, like... The unity that I felt with these random strangers, like I was hugging people I didn't know. I don't do that. Like I don't hug people I don't know. I don't even hug people I do know. So it like was so exciting to see like the people just unified around this team. And the other time I experienced this was uh, after the Broncos won the Super Bowl. And I was downtown with about a million other Broncos fans watching Peyton Manning text his mom, apparently, um, instead of enjoy us being there to support him. Um, downtown, like, you guys remember the parade? You remember how many people flooded into those streets? Like, the entire city was just orange. One of the most coolest, profound, unifying moments I'd ever been part of. Again, random strangers. People I had nothing in common with except the fact that we lived in Denver and we loved the Broncos. Okay, I want you to think about that. And I want, what I want you to realize is those experiences are just a foretaste of the unity that Jesus envisions for us. Those are just a taste of the unity that Jesus desires for his community, the the community that Jesus prays for in John 17. One commentator that I read put it this way. He said, the kind of unity that is central to Jesus' high priestly prayer is not organizational, but is an all-encompassing relational reality that binds believers together with each other and with their Lord. Unity that can be achieved only through the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Guys, this kind of unity is supernatural. Like, this kind of unity comes only through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the work that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross and the Spirit does to unite us. 
See, Jesus knew that one of the greatest ways to test the authenticity of a movement was to look at the unity of its followers, to look at the way that they treat one another, to look at the way that they do life with one another. You guys know this. Many of you are sitting in this room right now because this is true, all right? Like, when you first came to the Summit Church, what attracted you to the Summit Church was not the great preaching, although we have great preaching. Um, You're welcome, Brian. was not the great worship, although we have great worship. Thank you, PT. But it was this community. It was the unity of the people here that attracted you. Many of you are here right now because of this, right? You don't yet believe everything that we believe, and that's awesome. Like, I'm so glad that you're here. It's okay that you don't believe everything yet, but I want you to realize is that there's something here that's attractive to you, and this is what it is. This is the Christian apologetic at work. See, Christian community is a vital part of Christian mission. Mission takes place as people see our love for one another, We all know that the gospel is communicated both through the words that we say and the lives that we live. But what Jesus says is that it is the life that we live together that counts. Francis Schaeffer, he's a a great theologian, apologist, and pastor. And he put it this way. He said that we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives us is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Guys, if you're anything like me, um, when you think about mission, when you think about the Christian mission, you immediately think about doing, right? You immediately think about action steps, like what do I need to do? What do I need to execute? But what Jesus is telling us here is really radical. What Jesus is telling us, he's saying that before you execute a plan, you need to belong to a community, okay? So that's what the text says. The text says that the strategy for Christian mission the mission that we've been talking about for the past five, six weeks is the Christian community. It's you guys. You guys in this room who are followers of Jesus, you are plan A for Christian mission. But what I want to look at next is I want to ask the question, what does this look like at the summit? What does this look like at the summit church? How do we practically pursue this kind of life togetherness that Jesus is talking about in John 17? Well, Christian community is hard. I don't know if you've uh, experienced that yet, but I'll be honest, it is. And that is because unity doesn't happen naturally, right? We are naturally, habitually divisive people. Unity doesn't come natural. Oneness does not come natural. There is no such thing as organic unity because unity is not a passive posture. It's an active pursuit. Unity is not a passive posture. It's an active pursuit. We have to aggressively fight for unity to have Jesus' prayer realized in our lives and in our communities. And the way that you, and the way that we intentionally pursue life together at the summit is through our city groups. City groups are the context where we, as the people of God in this community, practically do life together. So as I thought about our city groups, I thought about three rhythms that we have built into our city groups um, to contribute to this type of community, to this type of life togetherness um, that Jesus prays for in John 17. And um, the first rhythm that we have built into our city groups is that we share meals. We share a meal together, right? If you've been to one of our city groups, um, or maybe you haven't been yet, but you're uh, going to check one out. This is what you can expect. Like every time our city groups gather, there's food. And I think the significance of this 
is often lost on us. You know, we don't just eat together because it's convenient, right? It is convenient. If you're going to have city group at 6.30 at 7 o'clock, it does make it easier to have a meal. But there's so much more going on than that. Because meals are meant to be shared, right? Like eating alone feels wrong. Have you guys ever been to a restaurant, um, maybe with your family or, or some friends, um, and noticed someone eating by themselves? Like this happened to me recently. There's, I was at a sushi bar, and there's kind of like the sushi bar that faces the sushi chefs, and people show up after work with like their laptops, and they eat dinner, and apparently they do work, or they, I don't know what they do. Um, but like, don't you feel bad for those people? Like, they seem so lonely. Like, they don't have anyone to share the meal, this meal with. Like, it feels wrong. Like, there's something, like, deep, with, deep within us that just knows that, like, a meal is meant to be shared. Last month, my wife and I were in San Diego, and um, we met up with uh, one of my cousins who was randomly there for work, and she just started a new job, and this job um, has her traveling quite a bit. And so, um, you know, I texted her that morning, found out she was there. We met up for dinner that night. And she was excited to see us, but not for the reasons I thought. Like, it's been a while since I've seen her, and we're really close. But the reason she was so excited to see us was because she didn't have to eat another meal alone. Like, the night before, she had tried. She had walked into a restaurant. She had got the menu, and she broke down in tears, threw the menu down and threw out, or ran out. She couldn't do it. Like, there was something so emotional about trying to eat a meal together. There was something that felt so wrong about that. And we all know that. Like, we all feel that. Meals communicate something. They express and embody community. They remind us of our dependence on God and our dependence on other people. Sharing a meal with people was a fundamental component of Jesus' ministry. And it's no coincidence that even in the context of John 17, Jesus uses a meal, the Last Supper, communion, to help his followers remember that his sacrifice for them and look forward to the day when he would share a meal with them again. That's what we're doing when we take communion. That's what we're going to do right after this sermon, is is we're going to look forward to a day when we're going to share a meal with Jesus again. So every time that we share a meal with our city groups, we are anticipating that very same hope. Sociologists and psychologists, uh, they've researched and they've documented what happens to families who don't share meals. You guys are probably pretty familiar with this research. It's Um, I feel like it's kind of trending right now. Um, But what happens to these families when they stop sharing meals is they stop functioning like a family, right? The family unit breaks down when people stop eating meals together. One article I read said this. They said the average American eats one in every five meals in their car. One in four Americans eats at least one fasting meal every single day by themselves. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. They also said that the dinner table can act as a unifier, a place of community. Sharing a meal is an excuse to catch up and talk, one of the few times where people are happy to put aside their work and take time out of their day. After all, it is rare that we Americans grant ourselves pleasure over productivity. Guys, this is not a believer saying this. Like, this is a purely secular source, just confirming the, the, what Scripture says about meals and, and just the frequency that we see Jesus eating meals with people. Guys, it only makes sense that if we're going to do life together like a family, we need to share meals together. When you share a meal, eating becomes a highly missional activity because it points to the oneness and the unity that we share in Jesus and the meal that we're going to share with him one day. So we share meals intentionally. We share meals. Don't overlook the significance of that. The next thing we share is we share our time. Guys, the reason this is significant in our culture because 
the one thing that we all, the one thing besides money that we all feel like we never have enough of is time. Do you feel that? I always feel like that. No matter how much I get done in a week, I never feel like I have enough time to do everything that I want to do. Your time is valuable. It really is. And so giving away some of your time communicates something to your city group. It communicates that these people matter. You're worth it. You're worth my time. Time is a limited resource, but I'm going to give some of it to you. And when there's a room full of people all communicating that same thing, oneness is built. Guys, giving away our time is often just as hard as giving away our money. But Jesus says that both are an investment in his mission. And I'll be honest, guys, like two hours a week or an hour and a half a week isn't nearly enough time to really experience the kind of oneness, oneness that Jesus is talking about here. Like, honestly, two hours a week, that's just like a jumping off point, right? That's kind of a baseline. That's like a minimum, all right? Um, I'll be, like, some of the best time that I've experienced with my city group has actually been time way outside of these weekly gatherings. Um, recently, I went with my city group on a camping trip, um, we, and we tubed down the Colorado River. And the conversations that I had with some of those people just around the campfire and just hanging out um, taught me so much about them as people and who they are and what they desire, what makes them tick. Um, times where my city group has just gone to a park on a Saturday and played volleyball and cornhole and hung out gave me such insight into who those people are and what really defines them. Times where we've gone out for happy hours after work or ice cream um, is so meaningful to help me really feel like I'm doing life with these people and not just checking off a box on my schedule. Time that I've spent with other men studying the Bible as well. Um, time that I've spent serving people in my city group through moving, right? If you've been a city group, uh, you know that like, that's probably the most common request. Um, is People move, it seems like, every week. And I have a truck, uh, so I have the Summit Church moving view. I shouldn't have just told you all that. I don't have a truck. Uh, but like, that's the way you serve the people in your city group. They're worth it. You give your time. You help them move. You guys, the final rhythm that we've structured into our city groups is that we share our hearts. City groups are the environment where we get out of rows and we get into circles and we share our hearts with one another. I know this is the most difficult one of these to do, to practice. Um, I know that to share our hearts takes risk, right? It takes vulnerability. But our desire as pastors at the summit is that your city group would be the place where the longing for community that you were created with would be met. Where else in your life do you have a place specifically created to help you create deep, meaningful friendships? Like really, where else in your life is their community created for that purpose, to help you have deep, meaningful friendships. In the conversations that you have at your city group, you're hearing pieces of people's story. You're getting a glimpse into who they are as people. You're getting a glimpse into their fears. You're getting a glimpse into uh, their triumphs, their struggles. You're getting a glimpse into what makes them human. Where else do you have a place designed for you to be truly transparent and truly vulnerable? Let me just tell you how, that, what, how that's looked in my city group. In my city group, I've had people share some truly heavy stuff, really heavy stuff, super personal. And you know what the reaction was? People didn't change the conversation. People didn't get up and walk out of the room. People actually huddled around that person 
and asked questions and prayed over that person. Guys, in my city group, I've had people cry. I've had people shed tears. But you know what happened? It didn't get awkward. It was actually quite the opposite. People shed tears for them. People cried with them. Where else in this city do you have people who will do that with you? Where else do you have an environment architected to help you press into the deep truths of the gospel and who God has created you to be? I I mentioned earlier how I've studied the Bible with other men. Some of the topics that we've covered have been topics like manhood, topics like emotional health. Like, where else do you sit around a table with a bunch of men talking about your emotions? Besides therapy. (laughs) It's not therapy, it's different. Right? Like, where else? You don't get that at the gym. You, You don't get that at work. You don't get that at your social uh, kickball uh, team. Where else do you pray with other people, right? Like praying by yourself is one thing, but that's not the whole thing. Where else is there people that you can pray with? Guys, praying with other people creates a sense of oneness like nothing else can. Hearing people pray out loud to the God who created them gives you a picture of who they are like nothing else can. Prayer is most powerful when we do it in the context of community. All right, so we've looked at what the text says. We've looked at why we do what we do when it comes to city groups at the Summit Church and some of the things that we've intentionally built into them. But now I want to ask a question. I want to help you see what you can practically do, what you can practically do today. As I thought about what you could practically take away um, from this text, there's two things that came to mind. They both start with a C. I'm sorry, it's cheesy, but you're going to remember it. One is commit. You can commit. I just saw you kind of squirm a little bit, right? We talk about commitment all the time. It's good for you. Believe it. It's for your joy. Some of you, all of you actually need to commit in one of three ways. For some of you, you just need to commit to the Summit family. You really do. You've been coming to the summit on Sundays uh, for maybe years, maybe a few months, maybe a few weeks, right? And you've been ignoring all of our invitations for summit classes, and you know in the back of your mind that this is for you, that God wants this for you, but you haven't done it yet. You need to. You need to commit to the summit family through membership. We had someone this morning who was just like, I've been here for over a year. I don't know why I haven't, but I've known I should, and I need to. That's some of you. You don't have a good reason. You just haven't done it yet. Just come talk to me. Come talk to Brian. Come talk to Andy. Come talk to Turney after the service, and just help, let us help you take some next steps towards membership at the summit. For some of you, you need to commit to a city group. All right? You've been around here long enough to know that like the Sunday gathering is only half of the summit experience, okay? You, you don't do life together by only coming on Sundays. You embody what Jesus is praying here for here by being part of a city group. And lucky for you, city groups are resuming this week, all right? And we're having a city group connect right afterwards. We've never had one of those before, but we're having it right afterwards by the city group map. All my city group leaders that are here tonight are gonna, this is a reminder for you guys, are gonna be at the city group map. We're gonna have some snacks and coffee back there all with a goal of helping you get connected to a city group. Some of you need to commit to a city group. That's all there is to it. You've been checking some out maybe, but you have not committed to a group of people to do life with those people, and that's what we want for you. Now, there's the rest of you, those of you that would consider yourselves committed to a city group already, those of you that 
um, have been part of a city group for a while, have already moved from spectating to participating, I want you to lead the way in modeling commitment in your city group this next semester. Guys, life together is hard. We've talked about that. But every community needs a few people who are going to model radical commitment because commitment's contagious. So lead the way in creating a culture of commitment because that culture of commitment is not going to happen on its own. It's going to take a few of you, a few of you in every city group that are going to say, I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the couple that's going to model commitment for this semester. And I want you to watch what happens. I want you to watch what happens to the people that you're doing life with. I want you to watch their commitment level increase because of your commitment to them. Here's a couple things I thought of when it comes to that. When you plan your week, all right, we all plan our weeks. We should plan our weeks. We're all adults. We should plan our weeks. (laughs) Prioritize your week around your city group. Crazy, right? Prioritize your week around your city group. So that means if your city group meets on Thursday night, you pull out your iPhone, and on your calendar, you write city group. And if anything conflicts, too bad. I've got city group, all right? You guys do that with other things. I know you do. So do that with your city group. Work your schedule around your city group. And here's another thing you do. Lead the way by initiating opportunities for people in your group to get together. Guys, initiating things. Some of you are natural initiators. Most of us aren't. But that's such a practical way to create a culture of initiation in your city group. Like, look for practical ways to incorporate people in your city group and the stuff you do every day. Right? We all do stuff. We all eat meals after work. Like We all hang out with people. Like Incorporate the people in your city group in the ordinary stuff that you do every day. It's really not hard. So commit. All of us need to commit. Secondly, contribute. All right? We all need to contribute. Because for a community to really embody what Jesus is praying for in John 17, everyone has to contribute something. That's the difference between a traditional Bible study and our city groups, okay? In a Bible study, kind of the expectation is that you come and you consume something, right? That's the way Bible studies typically work. But in a city group, the expectation is that you're going to come and you're going to contribute something. Guys, what happens in city groups a lot of times is that leaders and hosts and coordinators, they end up shouldering most of the load. They end up doing most of the work. And that leads to burnout. But the reason that your hosts and, and leaders and coordinators do this is because they love you. They do this because you matter, all right? But a practical way that you can bless them and a practical way that you can build unity and oneness in your city group is by making contributing a priority. As I was kind of thinking about this, something else that just kind of popped into my mind was that, you know, when you're contributing, it's really hard to be critical, right? When you're contributing something, there's a sense of ownership there, and so you take criticism a lot more personal. And if everyone is contributing, there shouldn't be a whole lot of criticism, right? And what else builds unity and oneness like a lack of criticism? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> I want to tell you about a few people. I, wanna, I want to tell you about a few people that in my time being part of a city group, my time leading a city group, have modeled this picture of living in community so well. I want to tell you about Meredith. I don't know if Meredith's here. Probably not. She comes in the morning usually. But Meredith, like, when Meredith signs up for a side dish or a main dish, our city group attendance doubles. 
Like, she doesn't just go by Safeway and pick up, like, a two-liter and a box of cookies. Like, everything she makes is, like, homemade from scratch. And she's, like, a gourmet chef, all right? So I'm not saying that, like, you guys have to be gourmet chefs to contribute to your city group. But, like, the intentionality and the thought and the time and effort that she puts into making a meal for our city group communicates so much to those people. It says you're worth it. You matter so much that I'm going to take time on my schedule. I'm going to make a killer meal for you. I think about Joey. Joey takes time every week to prepare a discussion for our city group, right? He listens to the sermon more than once typically before we meet on Thursday. He takes notes. He sends an email out to our city group saying, here's the stuff that I feel like God wants us to talk about. Take time and pray through it before we meet on Thursday. That takes intentionality. That takes thought. That's a blessing to our group to have someone that cares that much about the the content of our discussion on Thursdays. I want to tell you about Kino. Kino's not in my city group anymore, um, but he used to be, and it really hurt to send him out. But he planted another city group with Travis um, a while back. But when, when Kino was in my city group, I never had to do dishes, right? <laughs> Kino would not leave my house until every dish was in the dishwasher. You talk about being a blessing to the people that host your city group, the people that are leading your city group. Like, do the dishes. Like, get there early even. Help clean the house. That would be huge. Just an idea. I don't know if anyone's from my city groups here, but just an idea. How about Natalie? Natalie. Natalie Kaler. She's a coordinator for our group. And every week, she takes time to put an email together to take people, to put people on the email list that weren't on it, that should have been on it, that are going to like join our group, to plan the meal, to make sure the main dish is covered, to make sure that we know how many people are going to be there so that we have enough food for everyone. Every week that we get together, she does this, among other things. That takes time, right? That takes commitment. Those are just really practical ways that I've seen people model this so well, and practical ways that you guys can model this in your city groups as well. Those are all practical needs. Let me tell you about a few spiritual, spiritual needs that you guys can contribute to in your groups. Guys, take notes on Sundays so that you can meditate on God's truth throughout the week and then share it with your city group, all right? Like, don't just show up and then just kind of leave here without giving thought into how what you have learned and what the Spirit has prompted, prompted you to obey can be shared with your city group when you guys get together. Contribute by praying specifically and regularly for the people in your city group. Guys, and lastly, this one is so huge, all right? Like, I feel like a lot of times we go to city groups looking to get this, like, kind of spiritual shot but I want you to flip that. I want you to love Jesus. I want you to abide in Jesus. I want you to be so filled with the Spirit that when you gather with your community, you have something to contribute, okay? And I know that there are weeks when that's not the case, but if you make this a priority, when you make abiding in Jesus and being, spending time with Jesus and being filled with his Spirit the norm, like you're going to have something to contribute to the people that you're trying to do life with. Guys, the way I want to end this is actually a lot different than the way I had initially planned. I want to end this with a confession. Here's what happened. The first time that I studied this text and wrote this sermon, I totally missed it. I was, uh, I was so consumed with what I wanted you to do and what I wanted you to change um, that I totally missed what I had to change. 
That's like preaching 101. I, I know most of you haven't taken a preaching class, but like you can't preach a text that's going to change people until it's changed you, and I almost tried to do that. But see, I missed that G, what Jesus is praying, or Jesus is praying for the very people that were about to betray and deny him. You see that? Like, we, we've already talked about, like, the context here. Like, what's going to happen after this is Jesus is about to be betrayed and then the next day denied by the very guys that are in this room. Those guys are going to do the exact opposite of what he was praying for, but he dies for them anyway. That's commitment, right? If that's not modeling commitment, I don't know what is. And what I realized is that my commitment to my community can be so conditional, it can be so based on whether or not I'm receiving commitment and whether or not people are contributing back to me. And you know what? When I don't feel like people are committing and when I don't feel like contrib- people are contributing, I get resentful and I get angry. And a lot of times I just commit because I have to, right? And what that tells me is that I don't understand the gospel. I don't understand fully yet what Jesus is praying for and John 17, because when you get the gospel, you'll commit and you'll contribute, expecting nothing in return. See, we'll contribute, we should contribute, because Jesus has already made the greatest contribution by securing our salvation. The reason that you and I can commit to the people that God has called us to do life with is because Jesus is first committed to us. When we commit and we contribute out of the grace that we've been shown in the gospel, we experience joy. That's what I missed, the joy. Jesus prays for that in verse 13. He prays that we'll experience joy in the mission, joy in doing life together with other believers. Guys, our only hope for experiencing the kind of community in our city groups that Jesus prays for is the gospel itself. You've been blessed to be a blessing. If, you've been a fo- if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been blessed to be a blessing. So let that be your motivation for pursuing life together with the people that God has placed around you in this community. Let me pray. God, I so desire for this church, for this community, uh, just to be a beautiful picture of what you pray for in John 17. I celebrate and praise you for the ways that it is, and I ask for your spirit to move within each of us to create the unity that we need to embody this. God, I pray that each of us would take seriously your mission. I pray that we would look at it not as something for the people sitting next to us, but as a call on our lives. And I pray that we would see, like we looked at in this text, that the strategy for your mission is us. It's this community. It's our city groups. It's the people and redemptive relationships that you've put around us. I pray that we would take those relationships seriously. I ask that even as we're jumping into a new semester of city groups, that we would look for ways that we can commit to those people in more meaningful ways. And I pray that in doing so, we would experience joy, the joy that you pray for here in John 17. And I pray that we wouldn't do this on our own strength and that we wouldn't be motivated by anything else but the gospel. I pray that the commitment 
and the generosity that you showed us on the cross would motivate and fuel the commitment and generosity that we're going to need to show towards the people around us. And Lord, I pray that while we do this, the outside world will look on us and believe. I pray that they would be attracted to this and that they would believe that Jesus is Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.